Hello, heroes. Welcome to Modifier. I'm your host, Megan Dornbrock. Hey there, heroes. It's been a little while. November was bananas, and maybe I'll talk about what doing three cons back-to-back was like on Second Watch someday when I'm fully recovered. But the highlight of that whirlwind was getting to meet so many of you and the time you took to share your stories with me. It means so much to hear what modifier inspires you to do and what topics resonate with you and help you create. It can be super scary to reach out to a stranger in real life and express those things, but I am so glad you did. Thanks, heroes. I haven't shouted about it here yet, but there's a new show on the network by Hannah Schaefer and Evan Rowland that may be of particular interest to the modifier crowd. Their show is called Design Doc, and it's following Hannah and Evan as they create a new version of their game, Questlandia. It's super smart and charming, and you get to watch this process as it happens, which is so, so cool. Hannah and Evan were on Modifier before to talk about their other game, Noirlandia, and we got to talk about what that game helped them figure out about Questlandia. It's really great to hear a lot more of that kind of thought process on Design Doc, taken to lengths we can't get to here, so definitely check that out if you haven't. This week I talked with Tracy Barnett about his game Iron Etta and the many different forms it has taken over the years. Iron Etta exists now in several different game systems, like Fate and Dungeon World and 13th Age, all interpreted by someone else, either at Tracy's request or out of a love for his creation. We talk about what makes something an Iron Etta game, what different systems bring out of the Iron Etta core, and what awaits us in Iron Etta's future. And now, before I say Iron Etta six more times, let's get to the show. All right, joining me this week is Tracy Barnett, and we are going to talk about Iron Etta in many of its incarnations. Uh, <laughs> so, hey, Tracy. Hey, how's it going? Good. We we finally get to talk. I'm so excited. Yeah, we uh, we've communicated digitally. We got to play a game at a Catacon this weekend, which was awesome. That was cool and unexpected, and I'm very excited about that. <laughs> I, there was there was no way I could I could not sign up for one of those sessions, and we'll we'll probably get to to why as we're talking. So. Oh yeah, absolutely cool. So so with that teaser in mind, uh, Tracy, do you want to introduce yourself a little bit? Where some projects you've worked on, or places people might know you from. Sure. Uh, so my name is Tracy. I started designing games about five years ago now. It's actually coming up on six. Yes. I primarily have done my own work. Uh, I have published through Kickstarter. I'm one half of Exploding Rogue Studios with my creative partner, Brian Patterson, uh, better known as D20Monkey. Mm. And I have published now, written and published five or six games and a campaign setting and a novel that are just things that I wanted to do and happily convinced people to fund them <laughs> and, and work with amazing teams to get them produced. So school days, one shot, Ironetta, Carthoon, uh, those are the the titles that I, that I've done. Um, I also have a fate world and adventure in progress with evil hat and I'm working on a, uh, a new version of Ironetta, uh, which is sort of the topic of what we're talking about today. So I'll, I'll again, poorly tease that and we can, <laughs> yeah, we'll get there. 
No, that's perfect. That's cool. That's that's a lot of things um, and a lot of like different types of creative projects you've been able to do. That's awesome. Yeah, it's uh, when the faucet sort of turned on for game design, I couldn't shut it off. <laughs> and I've just been rolling with it since then. Yeah, that's the dream. So it is it is a dream. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So you actually in there mentioned the the novel that you wrote. Is mm -hmm. that where Iron Edda starts? Iron Edda actually started as an alternate setting for another company's game. Oh. Yeah. And I'm, I'm going to leave the details out of what that game was because uh, that initial bit was not the happiest of endings. Mm -hmm. uh, so basically it was a, it was a, a mech game and they wanted alternate settings and I really wanted to pitch work to another company pretty much mm -hmm. for the first time. So I was trying to think of what, what I could do that was both mecha and also sort of in the wheelhouse of things that I'm familiar with. And the, my major sort of genre uh, growing up and, and, and all was fantasy. Mm -hmm. So I was trying to think of how to combine mechs and fantasy and i was playing a lot of skyrim at the time mm. and i started imagining what it would be like if the the dwarven centurions the big brass mechanical things down in the in the dwarven ruins were about two or three times as big and were up on the surface and like what would what would fight those and the obvious answer was giants because they're the only thing aside from dragons in that setting that's as big but I was like, well, the giants in Skyrim are kind of spindly, and I don't really like the idea of like a human riding around on a giant's shoulder. What if the giants were dead and the humans were bonded to their bones? <laughs> you know, the next logical yeah. step in that thought process. <laughs> I honestly don't know where that particular line of thought came from. I just remember vaguely like playing Skyrim and like moving around the world and imagining people in big stompy bone mechs fighting oh yeah things and i was just like okay yeah that's the that's the idea uh so i wrote a small early version of uh iron edda for mm -hmm. that particular kickstarter and it never got published and i never got paid for it but fortunately it was creative commons licensed so Excellent. i didn't have to do any gymnastics to sort of have the the rights to my own IP. So I started expanding it and it went from an 8,000 word document to a 21,000 word document. And I kickstarted that in 2013, finally got the, the books sort of published in mm -hmm. 2015 because publishing is a lot more work than anyone <laughs> who's not done it before thinks it is. Yeah. And as part of that sort of chronology, I was trying to figure out how to really sort of get into the setting. And I decided a novel would be a great idea because why not do more work to accomplish the work that you're doing? And so I kickstarted Ironetta Speed's Daughter and wrote, um, it's, it's really technically a novella. It's about 42,000 words, I think, if I remember. And it details the the story of a bunch of women in the setting uh, because I didn't think that uh, women and queer characters got enough representation. Uh, so I wanted to try and do that. I, I don't think I did the greatest job in the world when it comes to that representation. Um, and I'll think a lot harder about doing that next time and, and try and get more, more pre-reading. But it is a decent story, if nothing else. Awesome. 
And I mean, that that's something I think all of us are figuring out too, is is how to do representation better. We just talked to James Mendez-Hodes a couple weeks ago and err on the side of, of trying, err on the side of, right. act, you know, doing it. So awesome. <laughs> cool. So there was, there was this novel and then um, you started working on Ironetta, you know, the system through fate, right? That's the, the first incarnation. Yep. The first incarnation was, uh, was just fate core and... Uh, I didn't really have anything in that first, the the title of the first iteration was called Bones of the Earth. And there was nothing really that handled scale in that iteration. It was basically, if you are human sized and you go up against something giant sized, it's going to stomp you. So don't do it. Uh, and, and as I was revising, I was like, that really gets in the way of exactly what players want to do in play. Yeah. Because if you are a brave, badass Viking warrior, when you see the giant metal monstrosity coming towards you, the first thing you want to do is try and climb it and tear it apart. Mm -hmm. And so I had to work on rules to, to sort of accommodate that. And I was lucky enough to take it to Metatopia in 2013 and have a high test play test with Fred Hicks and Rob Donahue and some other wonderful folks mm -hmm. and basically got the scale rules fleshed out. Uh, so the original version and, and, and also uh, Clark mm -hmm. Valentine is the person who, who gave me the idea for how to do it initially. And then it got refined in that play test. But basically the idea was that uh, human-sized characters use regular fate core skills and big things use approaches from Fate Accelerated. Uh, ah. and, and they didn't hit more accurately, they just hit harder. So they got a weapon rating equal to the rating on their approach when they smacked something smaller. And that was the original incarnation uh, okay. of, of how to handle scale. Was there something about fate that drew you to that system initially? Did you did you think about other systems, or was it kind of always going to be fate? Well, it was going to always be fate because the first work on Bones of the Earth was for a fate game, so okay. it had to be. Gotcha. And and from there, I I didn't personally think of doing work in other systems, but I thought there was a possibility that people could. Mm -hmm. And so in my wild, wide-eyed, pie-in-the-sky mindset, <laughs> when I did the Kickstarter for Ironetta, I actually had stretch goals. So the initial goal was $10,000. Mm -hmm. I had stretch goals mapped out up to 120000 Oh, wow. And they were all either uh, setting content books that would be written by other people or mm -hmm. versions of Ironetta in other rule systems. And the idea was that just like when any uh, group of players gets together to play a game, the the version of the setting that they're playing, as soon as they start talking about what they're going to do in the game or what their characters do, it's different than what's in the book, right? If only mm -hmm. in small ways. There are, there are tiny infinitesimal differences, like you, the GM might misstate the color of the mayor's eyes, right, if that's an important detail. But that means that your version of the setting is automatically different than somebody else's. And I wanted to see what would happen if you took that idea and expanded it to the entire setting and rule system itself. So mm -hmm. there were there were only three things that needed to appear in the book uh, for it to be an Iron Edda book. It needed to have the big Titanic bone-bonded mechs fighting dwarven destroyers in some type of Ragnarok. Mm -hmm. There needed to be the nine warrior clans represented in some form or fashion. And you needed to 
do sort of setting or locale generation through a series of questions uh, similar to how I had it set up in the original book. If you did those three things, then as far as I was concerned, your game was an Iron Edda game because those are the the core things that make Iron Edda what it is. Yeah. Uh, and so the stretch goals did not get that high, uh, <laughs> thank goodness, because I'd still be working on getting those books published. But we did get one of them. So Paul Stefko mm-hmm. wrote a game called World of Metal and Bone, which is a Powered by the Apocalypse variant. And he actually, uh, I, I, I told him when I read his manuscript that his version of Iron Edda was more Norse than mine was. Oh, wow. Yeah, because uh, because I purposefully took out all of the special characters, uh, like the Thorn character that appears in Old Norse writing and mm-hmm. diacritics and anyth- I mean, any other uh, special words that might have been difficult for people to pronounce if they're not familiar with, with Norse myth. And I sort of smoothed those out to try and give the feel of Norse mythology without the cognitive load of having to pronounce those things correctly because people can get sticklery about that kind of stuff. (laughs) And uh, Paul kept all that stuff in, which was completely fine. Like it was his version of the game and that's what I wanted to see. So it was, it was really neat to see, to see it expressed that way. Uh, And since it's creative commons licensed, even now anybody can do that. Uh, in fact, the game that we played at a catacon, uh, J. Michael Bestel took the those pillars, right, and made a 13th age version yeah. of it, which was amazingly cool to play. Really cool. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I was looking through the list. So the, the world of Iron and Bone, Metal and Bone, mm-hmm. um, is the one that got funded, but there were some others on the list. I saw Pendragon. Mm-hmm. Um, but how how did you pick the ones that were going to be in the stretch goal? Was it was it based on who was willing to write things or systems that you thought were interesting, or how did that happen? Uh, it was a little bit of both because there are so many systems that do so many things well and differently, and I knew that if a designer who knew the system and was interested in the setting sort of got their teeth into it, then they could do work that I would never be able to imagine doing if I were doing the work myself. And so I basically tapped into the list of people that I knew in the the tabletop gaming community and thought about the systems that they would be suited to doing or that I knew they had experience with and just ask them if they wanted to do it. If I were to go back and do it with an eye to really funding as many of those as possible, I probably would have put some of the more popular systems up front like I think when people saw Pendragon as the second stretch goal, uh, mm-hmm. a lot of people might have gone, okay, I don't know what that is. Uh, whereas if it would have been Pathfinder, then that would have potentially tapped into a whole community uh, mm-hmm. that would have been yeah. interested in it. But that having been said, because I'm I'm now on the verge of, or I'm in the process of revising the rules and, and doing sort of a new edition of the game, I'm I'm content with how things worked out. Yeah. Are are you considering doing those kind of stretch goals again? Absolutely not because I'm not publishing this one. <laughs> nice. <laughs> um I have learned a very very valuable lesson about being a publisher of tabletop RPGs uh and that is that I'm bad at it. Oh. <laughs> and and it I can do the work, but I don't like doing that work. And a number of people over the years, as I was sort of uh, daydreaming out loud about what I was going to do with these games that I was writing, 
told me that if you're going to be a publisher, you have to really love the business of publishing. And I just sort of forged ahead and and didn't listen as closely as I could have. And so I'm I'm working now to get sort of the last of my publisher read duties, you know, completed and get the games out and to the people that have have supported them. And for the new version of Ironetta, I reached out to Encoded Designs to to help me out because the game did not sell the way that I expected it to. And mm-hmm. I know part of that is because it was delayed in production. And another part is that I was not able to put the resources sort of behind marketing it and representing it that I wanted to do. Yeah. And I, I know the games I I knew and know the game is good. Yeah. And I knew it could do more than just be a pallet of books in my basement. That's not moving, uh, yeah. which is currently the state of affairs. So I reached out to encoded designs and came up with uh, what I thought was a compelling pitch. And they apparently agreed because we are working together to, to make this new version of the game. And I'm using the framework found in Dresden files accelerated to express Mm -hmm. the, 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 the setting now. And it's, it's been really, really gratifying to do that because it's causing me to dig a lot deeper into sort of what's true about the setting, right? Because DFA uses, they're called mantles in, in, in that game, but they're, they're sort of like character classes or roles for all the different characters, character types. And in the original Ironetta, there were extras you could take to be a bone bonded or a rune scribed or a seer or a leader, but they just sort of gave you things you could do. And there weren't really any mechanical ways to sort of tie that into the fabric of the society that you were a part of as a character in the game. Like, yeah, you, you can summon bones from the ground and, and punch a big dwarf and people are kind of wigged out by that. And that's about as far as it went in the original version. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the revision, now you've got a, a track of conditions. Like you can mark a condition in some of the bones and you can do all this stuff, but your giant has a thing called a worldly desire. It's something they the the spirit of the giant misses about having a flesh and blood body. Ooh. And to recover your boxes and be able to summon the bones, you have to indulge in that. And oh. if it's something that is rather, relatively innocuous, like your giant loves fried chicken, then sure, you're going to eat a lot of fried chicken and yay, you'll, you'll be able to have the boxes back. But it could be something a lot darker. And if you go too far, right the giant can actually gain control of your body and sort of ride you around like a skin suit if you call on the power too much and indulge their worldly desire to a ridiculous end, at which point in time you're viewed as an abomination by everyone around you. And that is a, it's an actual box on the sheet, right? Like when you are mm-hmm. an abomination, you check that condition and it means specific things and you can mm-hmm. cover it. You can be, you can redeem yourself in the eyes of the community, but it takes time and it it's a way of sort of, codifying the limits of that power and mm-hmm. not just the mechanical constraints, but also the societal ones that exist within the fiction mm-hmm. uh, for how being a bone bonded works in the world. And that's true for all of those different roles. And it's been really illuminating to have to dive deep into those and force myself to think about what is the, what does this type of character do and yeah. why Rather than just sort of being like hand wavy, oh, they're a seer. They can do magic. It's really cool. You know, 
Um, yeah. my, my tendency in initial designs and in my older designs was to be very hand wavy and that's how mm-hmm. I tend to run games. I'm very liberal with how I, uh, with how I do things at the table, but that doesn't serve the text of the rules well, and it doesn't give you hooks in your character to really tie into the story and go, well, what happens if I use the power too much? What's it like to have a giant living inside of my head? Like what, what do I have to do as a character to really express that? And now with this revision, the rules really point to those things. And in fact, they enforce those things. Oh, very cool. Not all of the player characters are going to be bone bonded, right? Correct. Cool. So I, I've just played um, Jay's 13th Age version. Mm-hmm. And we had we had the one in our party, which was you. Uh, I had to play a bone bonded. I've never done it before. Oh, yeah. It seems very cool. They are, you know, the the opposite of those dwarven mechs, you know, mm-hmm. visually and, and, and thematically and all, all that sort of thing. Um, in the old version and in this new version that you're working on, is it difficult at all to balance them with the other types of characters, like to make sure everybody is really cool? Uh, that is where fate really helps out because fate as a system is geared around capable people succeeding at what they do. Cause that's, that's ultimately the thrust of that system, mm-hmm. right? You almost always can spend a fate point and re-roll the dice where you can take success at a cost and you can succeed at your action. It may hurt, but you're going to succeed. So in terms of dealing with the different scales, uh, in, in the original, basically there were mechanical implications for scale, but even mm-hmm. then with, uh, if you were a human sized character and you're coming up against a dwarven destroyer, mechanically, the different limbs of the destroyer, like the legs and the torso and the arm and the head, those all map out to become zones. Mm. And just like, uh, uh, you know, the space in front of the, the walls of your holdfast would be a zone in the combat. So if you want to climb the legs or the torso or whatever, which we did in the 13th Age game, you can do that in Fate too. And there are rules to determine how you hunt around inside and try and find the dwarf who's powering the thing and shut it all down. So you can also do the uh, the Ewoks on the Moon of Endor bit, right? And you can lay down aspects on the legs, like tangled up, because you've already fictionally established that you and the uh, the the blacksmith and the holdfast, who are the two strongest people around, both have a whole lot of rope and can run really fast, right? And you, mm-hmm. you tie the legs up, so. You can think of combat with the big things that way. Star Wars is a really great example for that because the Ewoks are tiny or the the ships in Empire Strikes Back against the, the, the walkers in the very beginning, right? Mm-hmm. Like you can use those same kinds of principles for how does a small thing take on a big thing. In the new version, Dresden Files Accelerated has a whole little ladder of different scales of effect that you can you can operate at, right? There's mortal and supernatural and... Uh, I don't remember the ones are above that off the top of my head, but the fiction associated with each level of scale, right? Gets bigger and, and more powerful and stronger. And then mechanically each level of scale that you are different from your opposition, uh, means something, right? You can add bonuses to the dice. You can get extra effect on the roll after it's been resolved, that sort of thing. And that works really, really well with the concepts in Ironetta, because there are more gradations uh, of scale mm-hmm. than there were in the original. So there's there's human scale, there's heroic scale. That's where the rune scribed, people who have like runes of power embedded in their skin. 
they operate mm-hmm. at heroic scale. Then there's giant scale, which is obviously where bone bonded and giants live. <laughs> but then there's epic scale for the, the big, big bads uh, or for characters who have abilities that let them sort of jump up to that power level briefly. And then there's godlike scale. And all of those describe different levels of epic Norse fantasy badassery. And you can always punch above your weight class, right? Like uh, you can be a human staring at Thor and know that he's going to, he could choose to get a, a plus four on his roll against you in addition to whatever else he's rolling. And you mm-hmm. can still take a swing. Like, nice. because the mechanics allow for it and the fiction allows for it because the positioning of all of this in Ironetta is you are a badass Norse warrior. Like, mm-hmm. I don't care if the battle against the bone bond or against the destroyers, the titanic struggle out there is happening 300 yards away from the gate of your holdfast. If you're on the walls and you're like, I need to get there, I'm going to let you move that entire intervening space like it's one zone as long as you narrate yourself being awesome doing so. Because mm-hmm. missing out on being able to get into that fight when you're the shield bearer and your job is to draw aggro and take big hits, that's boring. Like that doesn't yeah. serve anybody. So I would rather have you narrate something epic and awesome and then we'll look to the mechanics for how to support that. Awesome. So you can be, you've mentioned, um, you mentioned Seer mm-hmm. a bit. What are what are the other types of characters that folks can be? Uh, I am opening my Google Drive right now so I can uh, <laughs> actually read you off the list because I have a few of them in my head, but. Yeah, because Bone Bonded were very cool, but we mm-hmm. did have some other excellent types of characters at our table, so. Right, so Bone Bonded is, is sort of the, the focal point, right? They're the. They're the reason the game is the game. Uh, then there's the rune scribed, and there are 24 different runes you can choose from. Um, mm-hmm. There is a leader who can sort of call people to to them and, and bring uh, literally their human resources to bear. Uh, there's the shield bearer who is sort of uh, blessed by a Valkyrie and is able to shrug off what would otherwise be killing blows and just keep the focus of the enemies. There is the seer who manipulates fate can actually intervene to save somebody's life. But if they're not grateful for it, then the seer is now shunned. Mm. Um, oh, and to jump back to the rune scribed really quick, the power of the runes in this version of Ironetta is actually consumptive. So if you lean mm. on it too much, your default six approaches one by one will slowly get replaced with your rune. And so oh, all wow. you can do is use your rune and then you explode. Um, and it's not, it's not guaranteed that's going to happen. You can, if you are judicious about your power, you can avoid that spiral, but it's always Mm -hmm. there. That slope is purposefully slippery. And so far I've, I've listed off the ones that I have written and play tested so far. Um, Mm -hmm. the ones beyond that, and that it may sound a bit odd to put them up against the ones that I just listed off, but there is a crafter, a merchant, a farmer, a bandit, a priest, a scald, uh, an outsider, uh, so someone from one of the neighboring countries around Midgard, and a wanderer. Okay. Uh, and the reason I want all those in there is because Fate is a game system that allows you to have conflicts in any arena that you want to, right? It's not all big titanic struggles against dwarven destroyers. It's the politics mm-hmm. of the holdfast. It is your priest of Odin has, has defected and you need to go bring them back. It's It's all of those characters that appear in in the stories that you can read in the poetic and prose eddas, because 
all of the, or even the, the, just the Norse myths, right? There are representations of pretty much all of those archetypes. And those are very important to me for telling thematically appropriate stories mm -hmm. because everyone in the setting is a Viking warrior. You can all fight if you choose to, you know, or if you're an outsider, you like, you can, you can do whatever you want to in combat. But for the farmer, for example, is tied to the land, capital L. And when they're defending the land, their, their farm, they operate at a bigger scale because the, the land is sort of powering them. Like they're defending something important to them. So all of those different seemingly non-combative or innocuous classes can bring something to bear in different situations. And it's sort of like it's balanced through diversity, if you will. Right, because it's based on Dresden Files mm -hmm. and the mantles in Dresden and the Dresden verse are vastly different, right? Like Harry Harry Dresden is a powerful wizard, especially as the series goes on. He can do all kinds of stuff that someone like uh, Karen, his, his detective uh, friend, just can't do, right? The mm -hmm. scale is vastly different, but Karen is super effective in these investigations because she has other resources she can bring to bear from the department or her own, you know, uh, intuition or insight. So there are situations that just having a big skeleton at your beck and call isn't going to avail you much of anything, right? In fact, it could be a hindrance. So the social fabric of the setting is how those things are balanced out. And that's why I really wanted to lean on the destinies that have a lot of power in them and make sure that there were limits on that. Because otherwise you start asking the question, okay, well, if a rune scribed is so powerful, right? If they, if they can just blast things and they're almost as strong as a, as a, a giant or a destroyer, why don't we just mm -hmm. get a dozen of those instead of, you know, violating the laws of man and nature and binding people to the bones of dead giants? Mm -hmm. And the reason is because they eventually explode, right? <laughs> like there's a, yeah. there's a fictional and mechanical reason for why that doesn't happen or why bone bonded don't just start ruling every hold fast sure. because they're keeping giants at bay. Like they literally have a fight in their heads every second of the day, depending on the temperament of their, their bound companion, yeah. you know? So all of these different destinies have sort of like those internal societal checks and balances to make sure that in a given game, every type of character can have their moment in the sun and can have that that spotlighting that's so important and can feel epic and awesome or devious and conniving or whatever type of character you're trying to express. Oh, I like that a lot. Cool. I I would like to talk a little bit about uh, what it's like to have other people make games within your your fiction. Uh, it it kind of <laughs> melted my brain a little bit. Well, you were sitting next to me, right, when we were playing yeah. Jay's game at a catacon. And I was nerding out so hard yeah. when he started because it was exactly the effect that I wanted to see. The way that Jay chose to do the the question asking, right, to build our hold fast and to sort of build mm -hmm. the hooks that we were going to use during that session, he put them all on rune cards and had yeah. all 24 runes laid out on cards he had printed in an eight by three set of rows and columns. Mm -hmm. And he then did a rune casting where yeah. he found out what the, the cant of the rune was, right? So was it bright stave, merc stave, or occluded, meaning good, bad, or indifferent, essentially. And mm -hmm. those runes, we would then draw runes out of 
a rune bag and you could do it with cards or however you wanted to but it was 13th age so rather than having icons we as characters would would have relationships or attuned to these runes mm-hmm. and we drew extras to add to our sheet and then we would have one left over and that left over one is the one that had our question on it so we'd if you had you know fehu the rune of luck then he'd pull that up and depending on what the 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 cast of his or the cant of his rune rune casting was you would either read the bright stave the merc stave or the occluded question Mm -hmm. and it took that idea that i had had and it it expressed it in a way that was so in keeping with the fiction and the and the setting that i about lost it right Mm -hmm. there like it was just so unbelievably cool to see someone else's take on on the setting not just uh fictionally speaking uh because by and large the fiction he had established cleaved very closely to the setting as presented in the original book and what will be in the new one yeah Um, but mechanically he really he really dovetailed a whole lot of things together that really made it work for 13th age and my only quibble with the entire process was with 13th age um, mm-hmm. because it's a binary success failure yeah. system and yeah, you get missed damage, but we were in that, that huge last battle. Right. Mm-hmm. And in my games, the huge last battles tend to last three or four exchanges at most because mm-hmm. everyone's doing a lot of shifts of stress or they're, they're laying down a lot of aspects. And I felt like I missed on my attacks to hit that big destroyer what four or five times mm-hmm. before I was able to get off a big power and feel like a bone bonded. Um, I did my miss damage, but it was basically just like dink. Yeah. Dink. And part of that was on me because I did not narrate my misses in any dramatic fashion and which I need to get used to doing them. But yeah, so the, the overall, if you like 13th age, good Lord, I really hope that he seeks to get that published somewhere because oh, yeah. it was amazing. It was it was Iron Edda, but perfectly tailored and suited to how 13th Age mechanically expresses fiction. Did you have any idea he was working on that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. He had oh. he had reached out to me before uh, we actually talked about it at Origins. I saw some of his early notes. And uh, if anyone has had a chance to see those, uh, he's posted them in various places before. Mm-hmm. His early notes are already more polished than the original version of Iron Edda. <laughs> because he's taking this very seriously uh and he, i think he's got a really a really good grasp of things but i didn't know that i would have a chance to play it until a catacon and as soon as i saw it on the schedule i found a place in my in my schedule for it because mm-hmm. one i really wanted to play it because holy crap someone else is making a game using my thing that's really cool and i wanted to support jay in doing it because i think he's doing a really good job totally did you give him that that any sort of uh, advice when he started, like about what you the the three pillars or anything like that that you think are essential for the fiction? Or um, that stuff was pretty well established um, because he he backed the original Kickstarter and he mm-hmm. I think followed some of the development of the other the the one other system, mm-hmm. and so those were pretty firmly established as things that if you're going to make an Ironetta game the way that that Tracy Barnett would want you to, not that anyone has to, because obviously I'm not paying anyone to do that. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but if you if you if you want to, these are the things to sort of pay attention to. Cool. And he did that, and his man, the stuff that I saw initially was just so good, and I wanted to just encourage him to keep doing it and and put more effort into it because I think that it was a it's a really really good design. Awesome. Um, and so the other system that it exists in the the dungeon world. Mm-hmm. Um, that one was something that you requested, you know, specifically for the Kickstarter. Did you, were you any more hands-on with that one than, like, Jay was, Jay's is his own thing. He went right. off and, and did that. So that wasn't, you know, something that you would have necessarily involvement with unless he came to you. Um, but the Dungeon World one, is that something that you just sort of, did you give him some information and let him go? Or, or was there, how did that work? It was pretty much the first. It was, mm-hmm. here are the pillars. Here's your system. Mm-hmm. Go make a game. Uh, and I don't know if that was a good idea just as from a, from a publishing perspective, sure. right? Not, not specifically, uh, aimed toward the outcome of Paul's efforts. Cause I really, really like what he made. I don't want to sort of imply otherwise, but I don't know if it was a good idea or a bad idea as a publisher to do that, but it was very hands off. Yeah. It was like, I would, he'd show me his in progress stuff mm-hmm. and I would, I would look over it and I was just like, yep, keep going this direction. Cool. And and just sort of want to encourage him to really explore it himself. Part of that is because I, at the time, had and maybe still do not have any real idea of how to shepherd someone through a writing process. Mm-hmm. Um, it's part of it's. I, I think that is one of the skills of being a publisher that I would have to take a lot more time to develop. So I really just wanted to get capable people. Uh, who are inspired by the setting to do good work. And that's what I think uh, Paul did. Cool. Since his was the first one, you know, the the first one to work with your fiction and your, your, your baby, was that like mm-hmm. scary or stressful at all? Um, I honestly don't remember. <laughs> um, there, there was, there was a lot going on sure. at the time. And I think if, if I can remember anything about it, it's that I specifically chose to work with people whose work I knew I could trust. Mm -hmm. And Paul was already an accomplished designer. So I didn't feel like I was handing my baby over to anyone, especially because it had already been someone else's baby to start with. Sure. Right. And then I took it and made it into a more fleshed out version of my baby. Mm -hmm. And then brought on people that I would trust to make their versions of it. Mm -hmm. So to me, what everyone else was doing was not too far different from what I was doing in taking the original 8,000 words and expanding them up to be a full game. Cool. I just wanted people to, maybe because of vanity on my part, I just wanted people to make something with the thing I had made. And paying Paul to do that was extremely cool. And I'm really glad that we have the the game that we have because of it. Yeah. Seeing Jay do it because he wanted to is just kind of mind-boggling. Yeah. Did either of them, Jay or Paul, latch on to anything that surprised you? So far, I don't believe so. Okay. Uh, they they both uh, cleaved very closely mm. to to the original like Viking Age type setting. Uh, you know that sort of traditional idea of what a Viking warrior is. For some of the other uh, alternate settings, if you if you will, for the other systems, there were some really really different ideas. There was a a proposed Lady Blackbird hack mm. where the giants were actually the ships that you were flying in. 
And so the pilot was actually bonded to the ship itself. Okay. That was really cool. There was a very Pacific Rim mecha versus kaiju kind of setup where the uh, the destroyers were like there were nine actual big name destroyers in the world that were you know pillaging across the land and destroying cities, mm-hmm. and the bone bonded were summoning up the old bones to uh, to to go combat them. You know, in, in a very uh, Godzilla esque kind of way. Uh, so people were looking to do all kinds of things with it yeah. that were not the original idea, but still had those three core elements to make it an Iron Edda game. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. And none of it ever came to fruition necessarily, yeah. but it, it's still neat to think about those different possibilities. Um, I've actually even got sort of a, uh, not far future, but a, a, like if there's a meta plot to the story of Ironetta, like I kind of know where it goes. Mm-hmm. And someday I would love to essentially write a Wild West version of the game where Ragnarok has stalled out and the dwarves left these big, gleaming, weird metal cities dotted around the landscape and mm-hmm. everything dried out. So it's essentially like a Western without the uh, creepy, awful colonialism uh, and racism. <laughs> yeah. And 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 people are use, starting to use the remnants of dwarven technology. So there are things like trains and guns uh, that are common, you know, items in a in a Western game, and to have the bone bonded sort of fade a little bit, and to have the weapons have runes inscribed to them rather than people. And and sort of have the set the setting evolve in that direction. Plus, I just wanted I want to do an anti colonialist western, mm. and I think that people reclaiming their actual home that's been taken over would be a, a a pretty decent way to do that. Yeah, that would be very cool to see. Yeah, we'll see what happens. Well, with this new version of Iron Edda that you're working on, perhaps we'll see some new fans that are haven't played before, some renewed interest from other folks. Um, heroes, this is your call to action if you're looking for a, a project to work on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's mine. <laughs> it's, uh, it's Creative Commons licensed, and it's it's just attribution based. You don't have mm-hmm. to. Even license your own version the same way. You just have to say, "Hey, it's based on Ironetta by Tracy Barnett." Mm-hmm. So yeah, it, if there's if there's something you want to do with it, uh, the original version is still on Drive Through RPG. You can you can buy it now. The new version will be kickstarting probably in July. Oh, cool. Um, but uh, but yeah, we'll we'll see what happens. And I'd love to see it if people wanted to to take their favorite system and and tinker and mod and hack and well modify yeah. to <laughs> to get there. Very cool. I'm just trying to think of of the most outlandish system I can can come up with, but I'll I'll get, I'll get back uh, to everybody on that. Uh, paranoia. <laughs> All right. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yep. Uh, Ragnarok and Alpha Complex. That would be. Mm, okay. Um, yeah, I think that would probably be the most fully outlandish one that I can think of off the top of my head. Cool. My my go to is usually how can I hack this with Golden Sky Stories. Hmm. <laughs> that would be well. See, so, so then you're you're talking about stories of hope, mm-hmm. where you are trying to find the actual reason why the dwarves are doing these awful things, mm-hmm. and your 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 brave, plucky adventurers 
together, bringing the giants uh, back from the lightless void where their spirits were consigned and showing them the value and and truth of what it's like to be alive. Mm -hmm. There we go. Um, cool. So you've already got a, a hopeful date for the Kickstarter, and it's the summer, mm-hmm. 2018. Um, so you're already uh, are you playtesting what you've got so far, or? Yeah, actually, I uh, I've done five playtests so far. I did uh, one at, uh, with some friends. Uh, one of one of whom was Brian Engard, who worked on has worked on a ton of Fate stuff. Uh, he actually wrote most of the stunts for the shield bearer when we were at the play test. Cause all I had were the conditions written and he was like, yeah, let's try this and this and this. And I was like, yeah, all that stuff works. And he said, yeah, you can use it. I was like, okay, <laughs> just excitedly nodding. Like, cause it's really good stuff and stunts are really hard. Um, yeah. I ran two sessions at big bag con out in California uh, mm-hmm. about a month and a half back and they went fine. I was really jet lagged and also sick and my head was bumping against the old mechanics in in really strange ways because i used to be able to run the original ironetta in my sleep mm-hmm. and having to really remember how these destinies worked as opposed to the hand wavy stuff that i used to do before was really challenging for me but going through those those play tests really helped solidify some of that stuff for me because the two sessions that I ran at a catacon were some of the best sessions of iron Edda that I've run regardless of the version uh, of the rules. In fact, one of them may have been the best session of iron Edda that I've ever been a part of. Oh, that's awesome. It was absolutely amazing. They generated some really good questions are really good answers to the hold fast questions. Mm-hmm. And for those that aren't familiar, that's how you sort of set up your, your settlement. I mentioned it with, with Jay's thing, but you answer a bunch of questions and those are the hooks that the, the, the GM then uses for you to play your, your game. And there was the Jarl being drawn aside by a dark power and the Jarl's daughter had died. And there was someone in love with the daughter. And there was this seer who was tinkering with things and the dueling grounds were cursed and, I mean, most of the questions in the generation are not happy, shiny, happy things. But the uh, when characters answer those questions, right, if there's a question about the Jarl, the Jarl is just sort of this nebulous figure until someone says otherwise. So a player can take on that role. I have there's a leader destiny, right there. It's designed to to be the leader of something. And so we had a, a character play the Jarl. And then there was this this cursing and this dark magic going on. And the person playing the seer said, well, I'd love to do that. So we actually had all this intrigue at the table. And because those two players were not NPCs, I couldn't use them to sort of drive the plot forward. Mm -hmm. So I had to sit back and say to the group, okay, uh, I know we all just met and we just spent an hour and a half generating these questions in these characters, but I am not the one who can push this game forward. You guys are occupying those roles, so I need you to move ahead. So the Jarl split the party on purpose, sent two people to investigate one part, sent three people to investigate another part, was going to go and investigate the dueling grounds themselves, which, by the way, the Jarl was non-binary, which was awesome. And we ended up jumping around in time because the dueling ground was only a half hour away from the hold fast. Whereas the site of the daughter's murder was a half a day away. Mm. Whereas the hold fat, the other rival hold fast that a contingent was being essentially sent to go destroy was two days away. So I would cut from group to group to group 
and eventually we merged the timeline. So like I would do a thing with the group who was two days away and then I'd say, okay, now we're jumping back a day and we're with this group. Now we're jumping back a half day and we're with the Jarl. Mm -hmm. Then as their individual timelines moved ahead in time and all sort of started converging on this rival holdfast, everyone ended up there at the same time for the last climactic battle where the Jarl's supposedly dead daughter rose up with the bones of a giant around her because she knew of her father's betrayal and how the seer had corrupted him. And just, it was intense and political and the players just brought it. And it was so, so good to experience that. Wow. How, how do we convince that group to start an actual play? Because I want to listen to this. Like, I mean, I, I don't know. <laughs> It was um, so good. Yeah, it, it just there was it, it was one of those things that I think happened because of the nature of convention games, right? Like there are no lasting repercussions for what you do with your character at a convention game. Mm-hmm. So you can afford you can play the evil seer who is likely going to be ostracized or something bad will happen to them at the end of the session because you don't have to worry about that in the next session. So you can just take the brakes off and and drive the characters like they're stolen cars. Um, <laughs> and I, this group just really, really bought into it. They really seemed to like the the concepts, everything. Just it, it all just sort of came together. And it's some of my favorite moments in gaming are when those moments happen. Uh, and you can't. The only thing you can do is you can set up a framework to try and get that to happen as often as you can get it to happen. Yeah. Because there's so many factors that have to work together for it to go off like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and you just have to sort of be present in the moment and appreciate it when it is happening. Um, I can't count the number of times where I stopped and said, oh my God, you guys are doing amazingly. Okay, <laughs> let's keep going with the story. Yeah. Well, that, I think in this case, the framework is a good game. So <laughs> awesome. I hope so. Um, there's still more of it to write yet for this new version, but uh, it was very encouraging to be able to use those mechanics and have it feel like my game again. Yeah. Because in California, it didn't, right? Those first two sessions at the at Big Bad Con, it felt like I was fumbling through someone else's design. Mm-hmm. Um, this time, it felt like Ironetta. It felt like the game I was writing. And that just was so energizing. Awesome. Tracy, is there anything else we should know about Iron Etta, past, present, or future? It is a game that, it's one of those things that whenever I sort of give the elevator pitch to people, mm-hmm. there are, the reaction is immediate, like, oh, hey, that's that's a pretty cool idea. You know, unless you're literally just not into any of those things. And that's that's fine. Everyone obviously likes what they like. But it's a game that I I think a lot of people would enjoy playing because you just get to be this epic, awesome, badass, but still a person within that with actual connections to other people and all those things, all that story juice that really makes uh, telling stories and listening to stories and participating in stories excellent. And I, I'm i really hopeful that more people get a chance to experience that. Uh, I was really humbled by one of the players, uh, actually not even in the best session of the weekend, but in the other Ironetta session uh, told me later online that she played that game and it was what she wanted all of her game sessions to be like. And that's pretty much the highest praise that you can get from anybody. And if that's the kind of experience that, that that game can provide, then 
just from that perspective, I hope that a lot of people get the chance to play it and experience it. Because if we can all keep sort of upping our expectations of what games are and what they're supposed to be and how a game session is supposed to go, we all will just keep getting better at doing this. And yeah. games will just keep getting better in general. Oh, yay. That's really <laughs> good. And um, Heroes, of course, we will have any pertinent links to Kickstarters when the time comes. But uh, where can they follow you online? Uh, so you can find me on Twitter. I'm the other Tracy. That's T-R-A-C-Y. Mm -hmm. I have a podcast called The Other Cast. It is three actual play shows. And sometime this spring, if plans go as expected, there will be an Ironetta game on there yeah. uh, to serve as a promotion and also so my home group can play the new rules because they're sort of my primary play testers usually. Mm -hmm. Beyond that, uh, there are only a few Tracy Barnett's in the world and there are, as far as I know, there's only one of them that does games. So if you, <laughs> if you Google Tracy Barnett, uh, you'll find Ironetta and my other stuff uh, pretty quickly in the search results. So uh, Twitter is the best way to get in touch with me. I just signed up for Mastodon as well. Mm. So I'm on the, the dice.camp instance uh, for that. Mm. Okay. And uh, yeah, I would love it if you said hello. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Tracy. This has been really fun. Yeah, thanks, Meg. I really appreciate uh, you taking the time to have me on. Yeah. Huge thanks again to Tracy for chatting with me. It was a pleasure to get to play in Jay's interpretation of Iron Edda at a catacon with Tracy and witness firsthand his experience. Both Tracy and Jay so enthusiastically love what they're doing, it's hard not to love it too. Check the show notes for Tracy's links and also links to these other incarnations of Iron Edda. That's it for this week, heroes. You can find Modifier mostly on Twitter at Modifier Podcast. We also have a Tumblr, Facebook, and G+, with varying levels of upkeep success all under the same Modifier podcast name. You can email me directly with questions, comments, or show suggestions at modifierpodcast at gmail.com. Modifier is a proud member of the OneShot Podcast Network, an incredible family of RPG podcasts that include shows like OneShot, Campaign, Backstory, Adventure, Neoscum, System Mastery, and Talking Tabletop. Join hosts Hannah Schaefer and Evan Rowland as they redesign their first role-playing game. Design Doc is an experiment in public, participatory, analog game design. It's fun, it's messy, and you're invited along for the ride. Find out more about all these shows at OneShotPodcast.com. Modifier's theme music was created by my favorite Bothan, Cat Greenfield, whose myriad talents are on display at CatGreenfield.com. Join me again in two weeks for another episode of Modifier. See you then.